the aftermath of tragedy. The inter-island steamer Wahine lies on its side today at the mouth of Wellington Harbour. Around it, small boats have been keeping up the search for victims of the disaster, and tonight only six people are unaccounted for. Official lists show that 566 passengers and 110 crew are safe, and 46 bodies have been found. So that was the NZBC's evening television news bulletin on the 10th of April, 1968. Now, the 10th of April was just a week ago, and we weren't doing the program on the morning of the 10th last Monday because it was a holiday. But I haven't forgotten about the Wahine. And I think uh, we should remember that tragedy over 50 years ago. And somebody who was there on that day and can remember it well is my father, Kevin Brennan. And he joins me on my radio program. Hi, Dad. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for making a bit of time for this. My pleasure. Because, you know... um, One of the, and I'm sure about this, I'm sure it's not a constructed memory. One of the first things I can remember is that that, uh, funnel, you know, that orange funnel almost in the water. You know, it was over, you know, however many degrees and it was close to going into the water. And the weather was clearing at that time. So it must have been, and I've, I've subsequently looked at the timeline, about two in the afternoon maybe that I saw that before it went completely 90 degrees capsized. And that is, I think, the first thing I can actually uh, solidly say I can remember. So there you go. It's a very powerful memory. I'm sure it would be, yes, for a boy that age. Now, we've spent uh, a a lot of time sitting at the mast. It's the aft mast, isn't it, the Wahine? Yes, yeah, the foremast is on Frank Kitts Park. That's right, the aft mast, which was in storage for decades, and someone had the great idea maybe a decade or so ago to... Uh, create a memorial at the southern end of the suburb of Eastbourne on the eastern side of the harbour. And, well, you've lived there for many years. I lived there, grew up there and lived there subsequently. And we, we did plenty of walks down to that, that mast and we'd sit there and we'd talk about it, remember? Yes, yes, clearly. And talk about the people that uh, memorial represented, the 52 who died, basically, all those years ago. It's now 53 years ago, Dad. It is. I was 45. Well, well, people will do the math on that and work, work <laughs> no, out. sorry, 44. Okay. I was coming up to my birthday. All right. Um, and it was April 10th, 1968. And where are your memories of that day? Where do they start? Well, they start at around about 7 o'clock in the morning of that day. Mm. Uh, my usual program at that uh, during a working week uh, was to get up at seven, get the half past seven bus from Eastbourne into Petoni where I worked. Mm. And we'd had a forecast the evening before that there was a strong southerly coming up from the south and uh, it was expected to hit the next day. And we also knew about the uh, cy- uh, subtropical s- cyclone to the north, but the two at that stage, I don't think, had been connected. Mm. So I got up and uh, at seven, I had my breakfast and went down to the bus stop to get the usual bus at half past seven. And it was blowing really strong. It was a, a, a usual Wellington southwester. Right. 
And we got on the bus and in those days everybody knew each other. We got the same bus to work every morning. So I sat down with one of my friends and we started talking. We got to Mahina Bay, which is two main stops out of Eastbourne heading to Petone. Hmm. And we were chatting away and suddenly the bus lifted now, I don't believe the wheels left the road, but the on the suspension, the wind was powerful enough to get underneath and it went up wow. and then went down. And we all looked at each other and what's going on? And that was the beginning of our awareness that something unusual was happening. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, you know, southwesterly bluster that can crash in every every now and then and it really can come in you know swinging uh, but this was more right well it it was at that time at Mahina Bay that was the first indication that the, this was something more than just a usual southerly buster and we drove from Mahina Bay round the bays to Petone and by the time we got to the overbridge over the Hutt River the pipe bridge yep there was a guy hanging on with both arms wrapped round a lamp post in the middle of the bridge, hanging on for dear life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and we knew that then something very different was around. So that wasn't far away from your work. Did you get to work? Yes, it was only one bus stop away. And uh, the uh, works that I uh, did my trade at was in Wyoni Street, and the back of the building faced towards the harbour. And the back wall was made up of the fibrolite, uh, translucent fibrolite corrugated sheets. And it was bowing in and out. You could stand there and just watch it going in and out. Uh, we didn't start work. The boss said there's something odd happening. Uh, don't start the machines up because being printers, we would have got ink on the uh, machines and if anything held it up, the ink would have dried and we'd have been in a mess. So we just held fire. And it stayed like that and the wind got stronger and stronger and then around about midday started to die off. So the boss said, well, there's no use starting work today. This, this is uh, unusual. Uh, go home. Were you listening to the news or anything? At that no, point? nobody had a radio in the uh, works. And uh, we just were going by what we could hear and see out of the windows at the factory. And uh, so I then headed back to Eastbourne. And there were no buses running. The buses had stopped running uh, in the Hutt Valley. And they were, I think they were the, still the, uh, mainly the railways buses in for the upper valley. But we had the Eastbourne Bus Company and they had stopped running. So I started to walk back towards Point Howard. And I got to Point Howard the wind was still very, very strong, but the worst was over. It was starting to die away. So I got to Point Howard and there were still no buses, so I carried on walking. 
and at the bottom of the road up to uh, Point Howard, the Point Howard Road, down on the main road by the beach, I saw a puddle and there was water all over the place. The waves had come over and the rain during the early part of it had flooded various low-lying places. And I walked into this puddle and I was up to my waist in water. It was a ditch and I'd walked into it. So I got out of there and carried on walking round. And by the time I'd got halfway through Lowry Bay, a bus turned up. And it stopped and picked me up and there were a couple of other guys on. And between Lowry Bay and Eastbourne, we were stopping and starting getting debris off the road so as the bus could get past. So we were all well aware that something very different had happened and that there must be a lot of damage around. One of the first signs of that was that when I walked round the bend in the road of going into Point Howard, I looked up and where there had been an L-shaped house, there was just one wing and where the L-shaped part was, it looked as though somebody had taken a knife and just removed that wing of the house. It was down to the floorboards. We carried on into Eastbourne and I got back home and uh, my thoughts were, were the family safe uh, because the phone lines had been down as well and uh, what state of the house would be in because we were right on the waterfront. I, I can remember also the sound of the stones, the little pebbles yes. that are being um, brought over the big seawall there hitting our windows. I can remember your mother telling me that when I got back that she thought the windows were going to be smashed in. But the most scary part for her, and I would imagine the two of you as small boys, was that a log came surfing in on a wave straight towards the house on the other side of the seawall. And the wave deposited it on the top of the (laughs) seawall. And then she was worried that the next wave was going to pick it up and push it straight through into the house. So the waves were coming over because I think they were extraordinarily big yeah. for Wellington Harbour. Like, they were. Uh, you know, t- 10 plus feet, right? Well, they were certainly very big. Yeah. Okay. And even at that stage, and it would have been around about or oh, half past one, two o'clock that I would have got home. And... Uh, I was able to check the house out and there was just one corner of a sheet of iron that had started to lift, which I was able to nail down. And uh, that time up until the next event, uh, it was really the two of you and my wife, your mum, telling me what you'd been through and how it had all appeared The, the ordeal, you. the ordeal. The ordeal, Now, yes. um, so I think I can remember that time when you came home vaguely because I associate it with looking out our window and the weather had st- sort of started to clear uh, I think you know and and it it cleared yes, up it, had. it cleared up pretty quick considering the yes. ferocity of what had just happened and visibility was coming back and the winds had, were calming down and I remember looking out our window and about half a k out in the harbor uh, not that far out at all you know it occupied a reasonable size of the view was a lifeboat 
That's right. And it was full of people. That's right. And and it it just went past. <laughs> like what? So then another part of this drama begins, right? Yes. And I saw that lifeboat going by and it appeared to be heading for the beach up near what was called the recreation ground. Mm. Uh, outside of our home, there was a, a wall that had been built because of erosion and it started at the uh, park where the f- football and cricket games were played and went right the way down to Lion Rock at the southern end of Eastbourne. But from there north, it was just open beach. And I thought, quite rightly, that they were heading for a beach to bring the lifeboat in. So I went up to the uh, recreation ground. We, we, I think we came with you. No, no, you stayed at home with your mum. Okay. Because the wind was still blowing pretty strongly. And so ended up at a small beach just outside the uh, rugby ground uh, gymnasium and uh, the cricket club that was built out right next to the beach and got there and saw the lifeboat, in fact, started to head into this small beach. The guy that was sitting in the stern controlling the tiller did an an amazing job. By his dress, he looked like a steward. He had a white singlet on and dark blue, navy blue trousers. Hmm. And that was usually the dress of the stewards. And he was amazing in the way he controlled the boat. He had a following sea with the waves which were still very big. And if he had broached... The following sea could have slewed him round and he'd be side onto the waves and the likelihood would have been that the boat would have rolled over, capsized, and all the passengers in it would have been thrown out. So how many do you think were in... Because I remember it looking like it was packed. Well, there would have been about 40 people in it. So I think the lifeboat could take 60, I'm not sure, but it was a, a considerable number, but it wasn't completely full but it was certainly had a, a good number of passengers in it. And so it came directly into the beach bow first. And of course, as soon as it hit the sand with a following sea, the stern went up and the bow went into the sand and it swiveled round and was side on Uh-oh. along the beach. Hmm. And... Uh, understandably, the passengers wanted to get out of that boat as quickly as they could, so they started jumping over. And the crowd, the small crowd that had gathered there were helping them out of the boat and onto the sand so they could get up to the road. Meantime, waves are coming, right? Yes, and the waves were still coming in, and they were big enough that every big wave that came in lifted the lifeboat and drove it a bit further up the beach. And where I was standing, and I'm about five foot seven or eight, so I had to stretch up uh, well above my head, so it was quite high. And, of course, with the waves coming in from the uh, harbour, each wave was lifting the boat up and sending it a bit further up the beach. So 
there was a risk that people could be caught with the boat riding up behind them and knocking them over. So when the boat rolled over, I had to jump up and hang on to the gunwale and go up the beach with the boat <laughs> until it stopped again and then help people down. And I don't know whether the bus was there before this happened, well, before the boat hit the beach, but there was an Eastbourne bus there with a driver and the passengers were going up to the bus and he was helping them on. And there was a young policeman there and he told the bus driver to take the passengers into Wellington Railway Station. And with uh, quite a few expletives, which I won't repeat here, the bus driver told the policeman what he could do and it completely ignored him, as it did everybody else. And the driver, when all the passengers were out of the lifeboat, he took them round to the RSA, which was in Arua Street, one street over. Yeah. And they were then taken in and people were there manning the RSA hall. And we went in and there were people on the lying on the billiard tables. They put covers over the tables and people were lying on them. We heard that three people died in the RSA from exposure. There were people who had hardly any clothing and there were residents who had come down with food and were looking after the passengers that were collecting there. And uh, the people of Eastbourne then rallied and one of my gripes about that historical record is that the record doesn't even attempt in any way to cover the role that the residents of Eastbourne played in looking after people and literally saving their lives on that day. The word went out and residents were turning up with towels, with blankets, with clothing, with food to look after these people. And there would have been possibly 50 people wow. in the RSA at that time. Yeah. And we went down and deposited the necessities that they needed and uh, then went home and they were looked after and I think they were taken into the hut city and some went to the hospital, so they were well looked after from that point on. But my concern was that with all the hoo-ha and television coverage that was put in place, it was all around the Seatoon area. Yeah, it was. And yeah. I'm in no way belittling what was done for the passengers there, but there is no reference historically about what happened in Eastbourne the part that the citizens of Eastbourne played and the fact that most of the people that were killed and died in that uh, shipping accident died on the Eastbourne coast. That's right. The focus was on Wellington. And the things that annoyed us most in our retrospective look at what had happened in the days after was that the police absolutely obstructed the rescue operation in Eastbourne. We had a friend 
John Pascoe and his wife. And John Pascoe was an outdoors person. He helped train the Marines that were stationed at Paikokariki during World War II in bushcraft and survival in jungles. He and his wife had a Land Rover and they had a big tureen of soup, hot soup, in the back of the Land Rover. And they drove down to Burden's Gate, which was the end of the road to uh, at the end of Eastbourne before it went along the coast road heading for Pencaro. And the police stopped them going through on the pretext that they weren't allowing sightseers. Yeah, rubberneckers, I think they called rubberneckers. them. Rubberneckers. Yeah. And the aid that was given for the people that were washed across the harbour onto the Eastbourne side of the harbour, onto the Pencaro Road, most of them were killed by being washed up against the rocks. Not many of them from, from hearsay actually died of drowning. It was the, the last attempt to get out of the water on the coast and some were unlucky enough to be at a rocky part with no beach and they died because of their injuries. The ones that were there to look after them were the uh, secondary school students from the Hutt Valley who had been sent home or didn't actually leave Eastbourne because of the weather earlier in the morning. And they helped them out of the water and helped them along the road to Burden's Gate where they could start to get help. But the police did not play an active part in that effort. They actually stood in front of people and stopped them going down that road to offer help to the survivors that were able to come out of the water. There's no mention of that. There's no mention of it in the historical record that is held in the Museum of City and Sea in Wellington at Queen's Wharf. I've watched their presentation and I've raised the question with them as to why there is no coverage of the part that Eastbourne played and the part that the uh, storm played in putting people over to that side of the harbour. It's all around what happened in Seatoon and the Wellington Railway Station collection point. And it annoys me and angers me to this date that the records can be so manipulated to only give part of a story, mainly, I believe, because somebody in authority, whether it's the police or anybody else, were un would have been criticised. And whether it was a cover-up or not, I don't know. But that was the impression that was left behind for the people of Eastbourne that were here at the time that happened. Right. Uh, also, all the film was from that side of the Yes, there was too. no nobody came round to Eastbourne to film it or to see how the survivors were being treated or looked after or cared for in Eastbourne before they got to the Hutt Valley. But the indication is contained in what I've already said where the bus driver told the policeman what to do with his idea of driving these people 
who had been in a lifeboat for a number of hours, I would have thought, because they wouldn't have been able to uh, survive uh, if they'd been in the water, but at least they were in a lifeboat, but it would have been for a period of time. Nobody took any thought of actually covering that. The press and the media in general all focused on Wellington as though that was the only place that mattered. Yet there was drama and there was humanity being carried out and put into place on the other side of the harbour that was completely ignored and is still being ignored today. Well, we're talking about it, so at least there's that. Uh, that um, Land Rover that you mentioned belonging to Mr Pascoe and his wife, that ended up being one of the iconic pictures of the Wahini disaster. The survivors on the tray of his Land Rover. And the thing is, he he wasn't stopped, was he? He actually, I think he carried on. Well, the hearsay, and and that is hearsay, I was not there personally, but it was a topic of conversation. The hearsay that I heard was that they were only allowed as far as Burton's Gate and had to wait for people to be brought up from the beach along the road to Burden's Gate from the south so that they could actually be then passed on and looked after and cared for. And that uh, wasted precious time, obviously. Absolutely. I wonder how many more could have survived if he got round there, you know. Well, that's the the big unanswered question uh, because if the population in Eastbourne had been allowed to go through the gate down the beach, many, many more people would have gone and maybe more people could have been rescued in ways which the numbers at that time didn't allow for. That's pure conjecture. We'll never know. No. But it leaves the question open. So the day started with the bus being pulled up to the stops on its suspension and ended with a national-scale disaster, the Wahini. Well, it, it, di- it didn't end there because everything died down and night came and we have had the house right on the waterfront and during the night there were trucks driving up and down along the retaining wall that I mentioned before from uh, the south, from Lions Rock up to the recreation ground and they were trucks that had been borrowed from the National Film Unit, with they were lighting trucks. They had lights oh, on them. Okay, they were looking for. People. And they were looking for bodies. And we were lying in bed, and we could hear the occasional call. There's another one, and they were pulling bodies out of the harbour, even after dark. Well, I didn't know that. And the next day, because of what had happened and the circumstances. We packed up and we went to Gisborne to get away from the events that were going on in Eastbourne. It's so sad, isn't it? it it's sad because of what happened. The very fact that the weather conspired in a way that nobody ever expected It was sad because of the loss of life. It was sad because of the loss of a ship, which was a beautiful ship. Two years old. 
It was almost brand new, as you say. It was sad because other influences were at work, which I believe, and uh, other people that were here at the time also concur with, that prevented some actions being taken which would have been in the interests of some of the survivors. The fact that it affected the whole community is something which shows that uni uh, communities can unite in times of stress and strain, that there is a natural desire of compassion and assistance that exists in people. But a lot of it was just brushed aside and completely ignored. Yeah, that uh, feeling that you must have had when you went into the RSA and you realised, oh my golly, it must have... What was that moment like? It was numbing because the lead-up was the backdrop in a theatrical term to, for the action that had taken place. We knew about the weather, we knew about the storm, we knew about the damage, especially up in uh, Kingston, which was a new built, uh, development site. Houses lost their roofs, some were just blown away. It was an amazing time, so unusual and unexpected. And it was one of those moments that made you stop and pause and when you, we walked into the RSA and saw the condition of the people suffering from exposure, almost naked, some were and just wrapped in a blanket, you started to realise what these people had gone through. And it was so far outside our imagination and our own experience that it had an impact that rocked us back. Nobody was unaffected by it. Yeah. It's a good point you make about communities and how they naturally organise themselves with, you know, not only the organisational parts, but with the compassion. Well, it, it must have started somewhere. Who knows where? But the phones must have been used. Word of mouth got around. Yeah, how does that get out? Yeah. Well, in a small community, things spread quickly. It, it, it goes quickly, and it's, it's more possible than in a bigger community. But it started, and it went like a wave through the community. Nobody had to be cajoled or encouraged to do something. From my experience and the visual and... Uh, optical effects that I saw was that people just spontaneously re responded when they knew what had happened and what was needed. Hmm. And I, I think that needs recognition. It's a bit late now because there aren't that many of the original community still living around here. 53. There are still f families, yeah. but like you, they would have been small. That's right. You're a middle-aged gentleman now. It was 53 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So it means that that just gets left out. And if we value our history, one of the things I think is, of mo is to be most important is honesty about it. We've got to be honest about our history. 
and we don't muck around with it or try and uh, pasteurize it in some way to make it fit better with other people's consciences what because I'm absolutely sure some people's consciences still respond to what they didn't do in, at that time if they're still alive. I'm speaking with my dad, Kevin Brennan, about his memories of what happened on the 10th of April, 1968. And that was only a week ago today that we were remembering, some of us, the 53rd anniversary of the Wahine disaster. And if you fast forward ahead just to the past year, the Auckland floods and the um, Hawke's Bay-Gisborne floods, again, you know, there are echoes of... They didn't do too well in dealing with it. Let me put it that way. So, you know, have we learned anything? You know, you start to wonder. Well, it, I know it's not easy to deal with disasters. It's not easy. No, but I think the media has a responsibility that they get past the drama and the hype and the excitement which must intuitively exist of co- of and course. actually report and dig deeper and put the full picture in place, not the things that are going to make people go, oh, terrible, oh, shocking, but to, to dig deeper than that and just see how a community does look after itself to the best it can under very, very difficult circumstances. Yeah. And that seems to have gone by the board. We, we, we have a lot of hype and... Uh, media attention on oh how do you feel about that and that's not enough mm. it, it's trivial in my opinion yeah and it and it, it it kind of in a way uses the victims yes it's making some sort of uh, profit out of people's suffering mm. not, not the recognition of how that suffering was dealt with well, I know, you know, I was really young then and I, I have a couple of memories there um, of it that are sort of locked in. But um, I, I still keep in touch with some of the my contemporaries and they all have an awareness of it. So it's been passed on is what I'm saying. Yes. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time down on that southern coast, you know, running particularly all the way to Pencaro. I've done it hundreds of times. You know, there hasn't been one occasion that I haven't thought of those people. Well, I think most people around here, if they're still here at this time, 50-odd years between then and now, I'm sure that when they look at the harbour, at some point the memory of the Wahine creeps in. Oh, for sure. Uh, No doubt about that. I know that. It isn't something you can erase like a chalk on a blackboard uh, and completely forget about, which at times... Even now, with the reporting historically of that event 50-odd years later, still misses out on so many of the important points that were not addressed at that time. I've done a couple of um, Wahine memorial services at that mast in the last decade, you know? Yeah. Uh, When the memorial went in, or the mast went in, it was obviously the logical place to gather on that site, particularly for families who who have an association through that horrible day with that side of the harbour. And you know what? The beautiful events. Beautiful. 
Well, if we can't give appropriate recognition, not just recognition, you can recognize an, any sort of event in any way you like, and it's still a, 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 a commemoration or a memory of it. It's doing it the right way, remembering it in the right way for the right reasons. And that doesn't even have its roots in the original event. That was badly treated. Mm. And it's still being distorted to this day. Well, maybe something can be done. <laughs> maybe I'd someone like from the museum so. is listening. <laughs> I'd like to think so. Yeah. And it's not just the people that lost their lives during that event or any subsequent event that's occurred in New Zealand, the Tangiwai disaster or anything else that's taken place, like the floods and the uh, earthquakes. It's not all wrapped up in those who lost their lives. It's also wrapped up in the people that were left behind and will mourn that loss for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And if it isn't treated in the right way, appropriately at the time, the chances are, like I think it's happened here, is that it gets badly treated for the rest of the time. Yeah. You, you've done quite a bit of um, sailing around the world in your younger days. I think you, you were employed as a, a seaman for a while. Yes, I was at sea for, for a couple of voyages. So you've seen the sea, you've seen the oceans. The conditions at that harbour entrance when that ferry came in were as extreme as you can ever get, right? Pretty well. Well, there's a, there's a very big difference between the way the sea behaves out in the middle of the ocean and how it behaves near the coast. And you can have worse conditions more dangerous conditions close to the coast than you'd ever have in the middle of the Pacific or the Atlantic. Right. Because ships have got room to manoeuvre out in the ocean. Close to shore, they haven't. They're at the mercy of the waves and the wind, the currents, all sorts of things. So really amongst the annals of sea disasters, I would rate the Wahine storm as one of, of the best and worst examples of what can happen at sea because when people are close to the coast, they don't feel unsafe. We know that that is a possibility, that you can be very unsafe, but it's disregarded more easily. People are probably more afraid of ships and going to sea at the thought of being in the middle of a vast ocean than they are going out of a harbour. But under certain conditions, going out of the harbour can be ten times more dangerous. And coming in with a following sea. And coming into a harbour. Yeah. It's the conditions that exist. And out at sea, the conditions, even in storm conditions... You've got room to manoeuvre. You can keep a ship bow onto a sea and maintain control and steerage. Whereas in narrow waters, near a port, in a channel, you can't do that. You'll run aground. You'll come to disaster. That's what happened. Onto that reef. Yes. 
and it was all over from that moment, really, wasn't it? Yeah, once it, the prop was damaged and it lost power, it was at the mercy of the sea. Must have been a hell of a panic. Well, maybe not a panic, but boy, that the urgency uh, up in that bridge. You can just imagine it, can't you? Well, the, the unfolding nature of it. Well, Captain Robertson had a, a lot to deal with at that moment. And it's a mariner's nightmare to have conditions compounding on each other that make your task more and more difficult as conditions worsen or as time goes by. There were a few attempts to stabilise the ship before it capsized. I think a couple of tugs went out, didn't they? And the Aramoana went out. That may have been later to look for Well, they were looking to tow it, I believe, first. That was the first idea. Yeah. But, of course, once it lost stability and started to take on a list, then the ship starts to become unmanageable. Yeah. And uh, the attempts failed. And I think they were probably doomed to fail right from the start. But it was at least attempted. I guess where I'm going with that is that they kept them on board for quite some time. Yeah. Hours and hours and hours. And you wonder, I mean, the sea conditions progressively got better. But you wonder if if that evacuated. And because also when it listed, am I right here that, you know, you've got a huge problems deploying or lowering the lifeboats on the side that's, Well, eventually you reach a position where you can't launch any lifeboats because if you've got a list on, you've got one side tipping towards the sea and the other lifting out of the sea. So on both sides, you've got angles that the davits can't cope with. And a lot of the passengers, uh, from what I heard, exited the ship by walking or crawling down the side of the ship towards the keel. Imagine that. Because the ship was listing so much. So it reaches points geometrically where the angles are all wrong. You, You can't walk along a sloping deck after a certain degree's reached. You can't lower life jack uh life rafts or lifeboats so there are certain conditions that are produced by the circumstances and the physics of the moment that you can't surmount mm. and the design of the ship it had a huge vast vehicle deck huge yes open an open space space which if and that's what happened it filled up right started to fill up yes Yes, the water rose from underneath through the uh, pipes, which uh, I'm not sure what they were for, but uh, they were pipes that came through decks from down below. And, of course, once the hull started to settle, water came up those pipes and uh, they, it helped flood the uh, vehicle deck. Which made the ship really unstable. Yes, that's what uh, capsized it. What a day it was. April 10th, 1968, the Wahini disaster. And uh, it sounds like one of, I mean, you've done a lot of stuff, Dad, but that sounds like one of the, you know, how do I say it? Not top memories, because that's the wrong way of putting it, but one of the, the strongest memories you have in your life, I'd say. Well, it's one of the erasable memories. It's... I, I, unless I get Alzheimer's, I'm 
never going to forget it. Mm. Uh, even if I get Alzheimer's, I won't forget it. I just won't be able to remember it. But <laughs> it's it's one of the things which the, once the mind takes it in as an experience, it's everlasting. And it won't be too long before it really is in the history books because, yeah. you know, very few people from that day will be, well, who were young kids back then who, you know, still got years ahead of them, but substantially all the adults in the room at the time, um, they'll be gone soon, all of them, won't they? Yes. It's mm. just a matter of time, and it, it's, that's the way history gets forgotten. History is only recorded by people who are interested in preserving it. Yeah, good point. <laughs> rather than altering it or changing perceptions with it well, by, by manipulation. Well, you end up with a distorted history if people alter what actually happened. But even people who remember it in perfect picture frameworks can eventually die out and the people that come after them who didn't experience that have no starting point as a personal experience to in, encourage them to investigate whether what is recorded is correct. Mm. And you look at various historical events where academics and universities, historians, have gone back and looked at old manuscripts and looked at old records and have said, hey, hold on, this isn't correct. This isn't what happened. Yeah. And omission. Yes, you you lose history by omitting to record it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is what I am complaining about now, that certain events of that day haven't been recorded and at the best they were recorded to a degree incorrectly. There were some heroes on that day, huh? Absolutely. Unsung heroes. The well, best heroes you can find. Well, Dad, thanks for coming in and sharing that with me and with our audience. I think um, we should never forget April 10th. And we didn't talk about it on the day because we weren't doing our program on the day. But it's still history today as it was next week and will be next year. Yeah. And if you are in Wellington and you go to the eastern side of the harbour to Eastbourne, drive all the way down and it's obvious, and you'll see that uh, mast, and it'll get you. It'll get you if you have any memory of that day, no matter where you were in the country. That'll make you stop and think, and thank God it's there. Eh? One, one last point I'd like to make, Paul, is that if anybody that's listened to this has evidence that anything I've said isn't correct, please tell somebody Please put your memory and your experience into the history books. I'm only recording what I remember as yep. I saw it. And as we know from the science that has been done, if you have six witnesses, you have six different versions yeah, true. of it. So what you do is you get as many as you can and you approximate. Yes, uh, you cross-reference. And that's how the truth is uncovered, by comparing one experience one record against another. So if anybody's got anything 
that they can add and correct in what I've said, please tell somebody, record it somewhere. Yeah, yeah good point. And we'll go down, we'll sit down there and have another chat sometime down at that mast. We will. Thanks so much, Dad. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Rescue operations last night even extended to the fire brigade. Bill Alexander spoke to the third officer, Varley, of the Wellington Brigade. We received a call from the harbour board um, between half past twelve and quarter to one to provide pumps and uh, manpower to go out to the Wahine. Well, we boarded the uh, Arahina at Queen's Wharf and um, proceeded uh, with uh, a couple of policemen and the harbour board crew out and just, I think, off Massey Memorial, they um, received, received a radio message to say that uh, um, obviously it was too late, the pumping wasn't going to be any um, any use at that stage and that uh, people were in the water and we were directed across to the Eastbourne area where survivors were in the water, both in boats, in life, uh, uh, dinghies and actually in the water themselves. What were the conditions like on the sea at the time? Well, fairly calm until we got across to the Eastbourne area and then um, it was quite frightening, believe you me. Um, there were some quite big waves um, by, I think, anybody's estimation, with 15 feet at least, I should think, some of them, and um, see these people in the water um, within this sort of uh, condition uh, was fairly sort of frightening. Did you manage to pick any of them up? Oh, yes, yes, we took quite a few on board the Arahina from in the water and from a dinghy. Um, we missed an awful lot. Um, an awful lot were being swept out of our reach and was being swept dangerously close inshore, too far for the launch master to um, get the Arahina in. In fact, I think at one stage he thought he'd touched the bottom and we backed out very quickly. And with those sort of seas, this could have wrecked it, I should imagine, very easily. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.